2: Welcome, to Close Reads. David, I'm David Kern.
0: David, <laughs> we need a funeral dirge as our opening music here.
2: Yeah, Logan, we're going to have to put something a little more dour in. So I am David Kern. This is Close Reads. And I am joined by Tim McIntosh and Angelina Stanford, whose voices you just heard.
0: Wow, that is how messed up today is. You forgot to give me top billing. I can't uh, even. All
2: right, we need to start over again. <laughs> if we do that, it's too risky. We can't, we can't do it. We- <laughs> push, push through, keep going. I'm going to try. Let me grab
0: a tissue.
2: (laughs) So we are here to talk about, uh, murder on the Orient Express, the movie episode. Now we already did this for an hour and a half earlier today. And then we started another show and we have had continuous technical difficulties. So we're, um, at this point, our fingers are crossed. We're knocking on wood. Um, we're doing all kinds of other things that involve rabbit's feet and salt and so forth. Um, and we're going to give it a go. Hopefully we will have an episode up to you tonight. (laughs) So, um, if not where we're all on the floor curled up in in uh, the fetal position uh,
0: I'm normally there so it's fine I mean it's just oh, okay. you know business <laughs> as usual <over> here
2: <laughs> we we should probably uh dude, we should probably talk about dessert now huh <laughs>
0: that was the smoothest segue ever
2: i mean i was just imagining when i'm on the floor in a field position all i want is dessert no that's Um,
0: not a bad move you're like okay crazy emotional woman i'm gonna throw some sugar at her not (laughs) that was a solid move you are a solidly married man bethany (laughs) well done
2: well uh it is thanksgiving coming up and we talked a far we talked at length probably far too long in the original show about different things that we like and dislike about thanksgiving
0: I know, basically i took notes on your pie so yeah we went on a long time about this.
2: so what i want to do quickly is uh have each of you share uh one thing that you like to bring to thanksgiving that um that's kind of maybe different than what you'll see at most thanksgivings or that you grew up with or something like that so tim i'll let you go first on this and i th- I think you said you even have notes or, or what a recording of your parents describing this that you're going to post? Yeah,
1: i my parents make the best turkey I have ever eaten, and that's not being partial. It's the best turkey I've ever eaten. There's nothing worse than dry turkey. Everyone just kind of like crunches it down like uh you know, the Chevy Chase, national Lampoon, Christmas vacation. It's just <laughs> awful, but everyone feels it's their duty. My parents' turkey is so good. And I and there's two tricks to it that anyone at home can do. And I'm going to post a Facebook video that takes 60 seconds about how
2: you do it. Okay. So for your family, because of your parents' expertise, turkey is more than like a uh, a vehicle for, for gravy is what you're saying.
1: It's more than a vehicle for gravy.
2: Hmm. Thanks to
1: my parents' tender care and attention of their turkey
2: now did they did you grow up eating this spectacular turkey? no it changed i I almost like remember the year that it changed it was just like what happened 1984
1: (laughs) no it was much later than that (laughs) oh okay it, it, it was
2: a pronounced change I just wanted to just remind you that you're older than me. (laughs) You were successful. (laughs) Tread
0: lightly, Mr. Kern. Tread very lightly.
2: Whatever goodwill I just earned a minute ago, I can and deserve that. (laughs) But as we did determine earlier, Tim is the oldest, and you're the (laughs) oldest girl, and I'm the youngest, and therefore I'm the troublemaker. So, Angelina, what about you? You have, you not a big, you are not a big Thanksgiving food fan because you are basically a foreigner. Uh, and therefore you have strong views on what is good and what is not good about Thanksgiving food. So, uh, what is it that you bring to the, to, to a Thanksgiving dinner?
0: Well, first of all, thank you for acknowledging my inherent foreignness because this is actually important to me. It really, it really is. Explains a lot about me. If you understand that I'm not actually Southern or American for that matter, but, uh, yeah, I don't dig on the Thanksgiving and I don't dig on the Thanksgiving food, um, yeah, so that's a whole other story, which we went on for like 45 minutes in the other, <laughs> the lost episode that yeah. someone somewhere has piratedly downloaded. But
2: probably uh, Kenneth Brenna well that's my
0: you know that's my theory but anyway um no so what i like what i like to bring um i like to make a carrot souffle for thanksgiving because well for many reasons it's extremely tasty but the other reason is it just makes me feel super fancy and i don't have a lot of moments in life where i feel like a fancy person but that is one of those moments
2: i gotta say i'm very much in support of the person who brings the fancy dish to thanksgiving because thanksgiving is kind of like christmas a little fancier right Usually, like people, yeah. like maybe maybe some people get brave and they do a goose or something, but right. like Thanksgiving is it's it's foods of the same basic color, <laughs> um, like the palette. You know, it's there's sweet potatoes and then there's potatoes and then there's bread and then there's cornbread and then there's stuffing and then there's probably something else involving gluten and then there's turkey and there's gravy and everything and then and then of course cranberry, which neither of you like, so. I support the person who brings the fancy dish to Thanksgiving. I'm very much in favor of this.
0: I can't even tell you what it means that David the foodie just gave me a thumbs up on my carrot souffle. Like, this <laughs> might be the best moment of my life right now.
2: You're really touched
1: by this.
0: Deeply. Well, yeah.
2: I want to try it. So you need to, you need to share the recipes. Is this an accessible recipe or is this all in your brain?
0: Oh, no. It's in a book.
2: Okay. Uh, um, it's,
0: it's, yeah. That's a whole other story. Everything I know I've learned from a book. <laughs>
2: So it, as soon as you started talking about this recipe, fireworks started going off outside our office. So it's, it's Friday night. <laughs> How and, wonderful. Yeah. And so they do this thing this, this weekend where they light the Christmas tree in town and they shoot off fireworks and everything. And it, So it's 8.30 now back at the office and the fireworks started going off as you started talking about your souffle. So this seems like a sign that everyone out there needs to make the Angelina souffle for, for, this, for a holiday this year.
0: Uh, I'm for that. <laughs>
2: Well, my thing I like to bring quickly is a buttermilk pie. I'm sure some of our listeners have heard of this, but neither of you had heard of this, right?
0: No, but yeah. I was very intrigued. I will trade you a carrot souffle for a buttermilk pie. And Tim, I'm sorry, I, you know, I, I I, think you're awesome, but I'm going to let you have that turkey all to yourself.
1: <laughs> Aw, thanks.
2: Seems me been eating turkey sandwiches for, for a month. Yeah, I am. So a buttermilk pie, the idea was uh, once you know, in the fall and in the, into the, in the, the winter, you didn't have as much produce. So it didn't used to be as easy to go buy strawberries at the grocery store as, as it is now. Um, and the same with, uh, uh, you know, you might not want to use your... Can you hear the fireworks? Yeah, I can. Okay, yeah. It sounds like oh. muted popcorn. Yeah. <laughs> oh, nope. I
0: thought you were just rubbing your hands across the table. Oh, that's what that is. Okay.
2: Yep. That, nope. That is. Uh, that is. That is fireworks. There. I got a perfect view here. Like my window, I can see the purple and the yellow. It, it did startle me at first, though. I gotta say. The
0: close-read stars have lined up for this episode. I'm to perk <laughs> up stat.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, so the idea was you couldn't find produce, so you made do with what you had. So you, people usually had buttermilk, sugar. Um, and then you could add eggs to it. I mean, buttermilk sugar and eggs are the essentials. Make pie crust with lard and butter and flour and so forth. Um, but the idea is it's kind of a custardy pie and then you bake it so that the top gets a nice brown crispiness. And then this custardy, uh, inside, that has got somewhat of a, te- a texture of like a, like a pecan pie or something like that. And then, um, it's got a nice flaky crust. So that's, it's another good thing. I'll post that as well. Um, and the recipe I use is by um by Lisa Donovan, who's one of the best pastry chefs out there and i just uh, I just adapted it a little bit and you can add anything you want, so you could add fruit or like a bourbon or or vanilla or whatever to it to make it more interesting. but it's pretty good, as is
0: It sounds really good. I'm really intrigued by that actually
2: so okay. How do you say the name of the nut that falls from the tree and we make into a pie that I just said? Acorn.
0: Pecan pie? Yes, acorn, <laughs> acorn pie. Acorn pie, that classic Thanksgiving staple in the Macintosh home.
2: No acorn. one can say no to it.
0: It sounds amazing, and I really hope you send me a piece. Just overnight it, pack it really good.
2: So we've got no pecan people here? No pecan people here. All right. Um, I'm sure someone out there is offended right now.
0: Good. I'm really glad we can all still be friends now. These are watershed moments in our relationship. I don't know if y'all realize that. (laughs) I have a chart. I have been filling it out since day one. You have no idea.
2: The number of the number of watershed moments seem to be increasing, I gotta say. Um,
0: and a lot of it has to do with my little weird obsessions.
2: A lot of them have to do with food, I feel like.
0: Oh uh, yeah, also the food.
2: food and books.
0: I'm very particular about food and books, okay, not about most other things but about that. Very passionate.
2: Hey, I, as one should be. Those are two things that you know a person ought to be so, somewhat particular about. What?
0: Those are the staples of life.
2: <laughs> Speaking of being particular about books, let's talk about this movie. <laughs> let's talk about this movie. I okay. know
0: we're also like dying to know what each of us think.
2: <laughs> well, the audience is dying to know what we think. And here's, I'm gonna give am I'm gonna give an introduction. There are three categories to just keep this conversation going. There are three categories of things that we are about to talk about. We're gonna talk about the end of the book. We are going to talk about the idea of uh, uh, filmic adaptations in general, and we're going to start there. And then we're going to also talk about Kenneth Branagh as Hercule Poirot. So those are the three basic categories that we're going to talk about. That's what we focused on earlier, plus a bunch of other nonsense that is typical of our show. But we're going to try to focus on those three things and um, try to get actually get through this one. Um, but before we dive into that, I want to ask you the same question I asked you earlier, and I'm very curious to know if your word is going to change. But in one word... Oh, wait, word,
0: that's an option? <laughs>
2: Sure. In one word, what would you? What word would you choose to describe *Murder on the Orient Express*? The movie. Tim. I'll let you go first. Lavish. Lavish. Okay. All right. And Angelina.
0: Okay, but I want Tim to give me the exact same response that he gave me a few hours ago <laughs>
2: <laughs> when okay. I
0: say this word. Okay. Tim, I'm about to test your acting because I want okay, to sound okay. natural.
2: Also, his memory.
0: Yes. Oh well, all of that too. Get into character. Getting to find the Tim Macintosh inside you. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, you ready? Um, I think I'd have to say boring.
2: Ooh. <laughs>
0: <Whoa>. <laughs> I think you may have overplayed Tim I on that one. You okay,
2: have I, have I, think a a I think me, you may have pulled the Kenneth Branagh. I think you may pulled the Kenneth line one more
1: time. Let's work it again. Okay,
2: right, are you ready? We're gonna workshop yeah, it, guys. Action. Okay. David, you got to feed her the line. Okay. 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 Angelina, the line is boring. I need it. I need you to think about how you say this.
1: No, no, no. no. Okay. You need to ask her what the what is. Yeah, yeah.
0: You got re- to say the question. I need my cue.
2: <sighs> okay. So, <laughs> hey, Angelina, what word would you use to describe Kenneth Branagh's Murder on the Orient Express filmic adaptation? Oh,
0: wait, wait. One word? david this is unexpected one word
2: only one word angelina okay, wait you can only Ugh. use one word
0: okay let me think i got a lot of words
2: i don't feel like we needed to practice the whole scene guys
0: okay well as okay as we know angelina has a lot of words so i'm gonna try to just find <laughs> one here we go okay ready okay wait i got it i got it i got it you ready you ready what is it boring Ooh. Oh, too soon? timing
2: timing <laughs> timing oh, was gaudy. off tim i
1: was too soon
2: we've got this
0: is what happens uh, when an actor directs his own movie
2: <laughs> all right guys listen angelina I need you to play that a little more subtly. A little less obvious emotion. Okay. And Tim, I need you to take a step back from the emotional ledge a bit. Okay. Okay. I need you to imagine that you're giving the line while in a barn in the dead of winter. And I need you to imagine that your dog has just woken up from a two-year-long coma. And that as you're out there, you are feeding it for the first time time that's what i need to deliver this line like so angelina okay.
0: also i'm gonna take this angelina character in a totally different direction right okay.
2: now all, right. Okay. all well, right basically right now we're workshopping our opinions on this movie just to be clear Okay. because so,
0: you know I- i'm just gonna go with a less confident like unsure angelina okay ready ready
2: okay. hey okay. angelina if you could use one word to describe kenneth Branagh's adaptation of the murder on the Orient express what would you use what would that be oh <sighs> um it's okay This is a safe space we're not going to judge you for this Safe space.
0: Mm, okay
2: i can't promise our audience won't boring Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> that's what you would respond like if your dog just woke up from a two-year-long coma in the middle of winter
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: that's how it felt david it felt oh. right oh Tim,
0: okay. if you could not i was feeding you with that line i was showing you raw insecurity and vulnerability i needed affirmation in that moment
1: i didn't want to come on too strong and you know if i gave you like a big halloween ooh (laughs) that could put you right back in the hole Mm.
0: (laughs) you've got to lure me out you know i need to be encouraged and affirmed
1: you're right you're right yeah tim seriously though um angelina boring david what was your
2: word
0: wait but earlier you said you thought it was boring too i need to, i have to affirm myself this is what it has come to
2: <laughs> yeah his response earlier was and i quote yeah i kind of thought i was a little boring too yeah i did i did um so i'll
0: be feeding tim his lines for the rest of right. this episode
2: <laughs> tim we're just going to get the trend the um the, the teleprompter out and we're just going to type for you and you just read yeah, it right. um <laughs>
0: I'm not going to let you interpret it and put your own spin on it.
2: Not. <laughs> you have to no. be true to it. <laughs> and then I went to the grocery store and brought broccoli. What? Um, <laughs> so my word was the word, I, I was the word, but B-U-T. Oh, okay. yeah. um, so I, well and well, of course we'll come to that, but let's, let's talk about these three, these three topics. And I think that these three topics that I mentioned already tie into the three words. I think it ended up being pretty good that way so let's let's talk about Kenneth Branagh first no let's talk about adaptations first okay. okay yeah Angelina you have you have you don't often like or even watch adaptations of or at least movie adaptations of books you love um can you explain why a little bit about a little bit
0: Okay, so that is true. It's almost to a rule that I will not see a a movie of a book that I love because I'm just too upset by it. (laughs) And so I've been thinking about why, why that is because I do understand that a film is a different medium than a book. And so there has to be a translation that occurs. There has to be a change, you know, interior the interior of a book is not going to work in a movie and a movie's good at visuals. And, you know, they just do very different things. And so I'm I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the translation. So I've been thinking about what is it exactly that bothers me. And that reminded me of a conversation I had with Tim a while back where I asked him if it was scary to be a playwright because essentially he's writing a collaboration with someone he's never met, Mm, a director and an actor. And he said, yes. uh, But that, when he's writing it, he expects that the director and the actor will, will bring their own stamp to it, their own interpretation to it, and that when it works well, you know, it's, really, it's magic, and something greater is created than any of them could have made on their, on their own. So it's this great thing. Of course, when it doesn't work, it's, it's not magic. But my response to that was that I didn't think I could do that, that I thought mm-hmm. the novel was my medium because I want to control the story. So I've been thinking about how... Maybe that's part of what happens when I go to see a movie. Maybe the director is treating the novel like this is a collaboration, right? Like well, it's me and Agatha. We're working on this together, right? And I, and it, and it's expected and appropriate that I'm going to put my own stamp on this. I'm going to I'm going to make it my thing, mm-hmm. whereas I'm looking at it through this is a novel and and her work and her vision has to be protected. And I feel very protective of it to the point where when I see an adaptation, it's not that I'm thinking, oh, I don't like the spin you put. I'm thinking, how dare you? How, how dare you think so you can do this?
2: When you talk, when you, when you say this, are you, are you talking about, am I correct in, in assuming that you're not talking about necessarily like changing plot points or whatever? You're talking right. about the spirit or the theme. Ab- the, absolutely, the, the, the kind of like essence of the of the book itself
0: Ab- absolutely and so, so if an
2: author yeah. if the filmmaker doesn't understand that essence and find a way to to capture it in a in a cinematic way then then you then that's something that really bothers you
0: exactly and 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 sometimes i think it's that they fail to capture the essence and sometimes i think that they think the essence doesn't even matter. So I'm reminded of an interview I read when the Nornia movies were being made and when the director there had made a decision to take the character of Susan in, a, in the total opposite direction than yeah, Lewis intended. I, I,
2: those movies, especially the second and third, really bother me.
0: Right, and so there was some fan pushback against that because it was such, a, I mean, it just completely violated everything Lewis was trying to do with this character. And his response was, well, that's Lewis's Nornia. This movie is my Nornia and i was super offended by that because i feel like well if you want to tell your own story write your own story
2: <laughs> don't yeah.
0: don't hijack his story
2: yeah what does it mean for someone's story not to be their own you know
0: right just make your own movie then so yeah. so i i think that i'm bringing a lot of these assumptions in but i am not a stickler like where it has to be point by point the same not not at all um and we tossed around some movie examples in the first episode and i don't know how how far you want to get into this again but um, I'm, I'm really okay. For example, in this film, even though the opening sequence was not in the book, I actually liked it. I thought, oh, well done. They have very quickly established who the character is, how his mind works, the way he solves a crime, that he has attention to detail, that he anticipates how even the criminal will escape. He's always two or three steps ahead of everyone. Mm. Um, He solves the way he solves a crime, the way he is as a character. So even though that wasn't in the book, I heartily approved of the opening because I thought, oh, it did what a movie does. It doesn't, a movie doesn't have all this time. And so it very quickly established who is this character.
2: So you were okay with them? making a choice that differed plot-wise because it was capturing or or offering us the essence of what Christie was trying to do in the book.
0: Right, and I thought that it, it, it translated nicely into what film does. Some of the sort of, he had some theatrical flares in that opening scene, uh, like with his walking stick um, and things like yeah, that, that yeah. I thought it captured him even though it wasn't necessarily what you find in the book. It was a nice, It was a nice visual. A movie's got to have those visuals, and it was a nice visual.
2: Now, Tim, you're a playwright, and you write scripts and things like that. Yeah. If you were working to adapt a work like this or any book at all, how would your feelings about that jive or differ from what angelina is describing oh,
0: wait i'm just gonna put you on pause there tim because uh in the original episode tim i'm gonna feed you your line again you ready you ready you said oh oh angelina that was a keen observation <laughs> and you said that several times and i'm just don't really yes
2: should, should we why, work? Are you,
0: why are you blowing me off so hard in this episode come do, on man you gotta do, give me something
2: do we need to workshop that line for you again tim <sighs> Maybe we
0: do. I think what we might know? need to workshop nighttime Tim as a character. Because <laughs> I kind of like daytime Tim a like little bit
2: better. Tim a little bit better. I think. A little bit better. I, I think all of us could probably have a different version that we need to workshop for our nighttime versions.
1: <laughs> you yeah, probably do. Um, so no, I okay, agree, I agree with what Angelina says. I mean,
2: are you, are you suggesting she's making a keen observation? Thing? I think that's a keen
1: observation.
2: <laughs> I agree. Go on.
1: We did not talk about this in the first recording, but I want to bring it up now. Angelina, how do you feel about, um, have you seen Shakespeare done when it's relocated in time? Instead of having an Elizabethan stage with Elizabethan costuming, what if they set Macbeth during World War II? How how would you feel about something like that?
0: Um, I I don't actually find that problematic for one reason. Shakespeare himself was pretty loose about the historical details and had contemporary costumes and some of his history plays. And uh, I, so I don't have a problem with that at
1: all. Yeah. yeah, I
0: think that can be actually really interesting.
1: I saw a performance of Julius Caesar and they cast Julius Caesar as a woman. And I remember I was talking to my friends beforehand and we were like, how is this going to work? How is this going to work? And we went in and 15 minutes into the play when Caesar, well, Caesar appears a little bit later than that, but when, when Caesar first appeared, instantly we were all just thought, oh, this is a master stroke. Because they cast her as a, like almost like a prime minister, not even a prime minister, like the president of almost a guerrilla nation, like in Central America, that everyone was wearing army fatigues anyway. It was absolutely brilliant. And the reason it worked is because it was very much in keeping with Shakespeare's Julius Caesar. The spirit, it was very much in keeping with it, even though, obviously, it was a woman playing Julius Caesar. They, they nailed it. Nailed
2: it. Hmm. Hmm. I, uh, I, I like I like the word essence. It, it, as we were talking earlier, I, that wasn't a word that we used. But it, it I, since since this morning when we recorded, that word came to mind. And I kind of like it for what a screenwriter can do because you can get the essence of something without getting the details of something yeah you can still capture an essence without presenting specific details
1: which makes me ask now whether or not the movie that we saw captured the essence of the book
2: well, and that's where I think we need to talk about, for example, the ending. And I know Angelina had some problems with the ending. I think we all had, I think we all were pretty similar in our approaches to this movie with maybe some some differences of degree. Um, yeah. Uh, would you guys, would you agree with that, Angelina? Yeah.
0: I do. I was actually surprised. Um, I really was surprised. I thought that you in particular, David, were going to be a lot easier on the film than me. Like, I thought we were going to come in here and I was going to be the real stickler and it's not like the book. And you were going to say something, and then you were going to basically lecture me and say it's a film, Angelina. It's different than a book. And
2: well, I, I mean, I do think that, but I'm still the essence argument is really important. So if I mentioned that I hate. Well, I did. I mentioned that I, the the Narnia movies are. I'm, I have a real problem with them. In the second one, in the Prince Caspian one, they change so much about Caspian and Peter, for example, that it really ruins a lot of what Lewis is trying to do with exploring, like medieval thought and what it means to be a leader and all these different things that he was doing in that book and so in changing those characters to that degree they they messed with the essence of what the book was trying to do and what made it a powerful story and that's the key like what is it that makes the book universally powerful and if you if you take that out then you've diminished the story itself and i think that that's what what can happen. I'm not sure that I think that's happened in this movie. I think there are moments when it teeters on that. And that's where I think maybe, maybe for, our, for each of us there's a difference of degree. But let's, let's talk about for a minute, let's talk about some of the things that it does well though, if that's okay.
0: Yeah, let's do that. I was actually just going to suggest that.
2: Because Tim, you mentioned the word the lavish and I mentioned the word but. And for me, the idea is it's good at this, but not good at this. Or it's bad at this, but it actually captured this pretty well. Um, and so, and that's true of almost every art, you know, movie. So I've kind of cheated. But um, Tim, talk about this idea of lavish because it can be both not a perfect movie and still be a lavish movie.
1: And that's what it was for me. It was an imperfect movie, but it was gorgeous to look at. It was sumptuous. Every detail of the screen was just pleasant to look at from the costumes to the sets to. And even the overhead the overhead shots of the avalanche falling down, I just thought that was masterfully done. I just thought the train
2: um, on the bridge. on the on the
1: bridge was just wonderful, and um, setting it right in front of the the tunnel, so you've got this great black landscape behind everyone. I thought that was beautiful. Also, I thought that that aspect of the movie I thought was first rate.
0: Agreed. And the interesting thing about that is that I did not think it was just like eye candy, but I thought it was actually an, an example of sometimes how a movie can do something better than a book. And so having the avalanche calls, actually seeing the train derail and then having it be on this bridge. So you have this tension, right? The, the sense of how precariously balanced everything is, which was one of the themes that the movie was trying to bring out was this idea of balance. Um, yeah. I thought that was actually a really nice addition in detail, right? Yep. Something that brought out the essence of the book at the same time showing what film does well.
2: Yeah, one of the things about the book is for all its qual- great qualities and for the, for as much fun as it is, it's not necessarily a book where the stakes feel crazy high.
0: That's very true. So, it's not a thriller. It's not a thriller. Right.
2: It's more of a puzzle book. Mm-hmm. And, so, and he spends half the time thinking or just having these individual conversations so they have to they had to up the stakes a little bit and i think being on the edge of this cliff where you see people looking out of it and having the darkness of the tunnel and the avalanche and little things like that create that help create that tension early in the film that can kind of set set the tone because we know there's not like if you know anything about the the book you know there's not like a bad guy rummaging around the on the train there's not really a well there is but there's not really one guy who's going to sneak around and everybody's in danger, right? Right. right. Even if you don't know the story, you kind of get that sense right away that 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 there's, it's not really that dangerous. So that they do, they do a good job of, of kind of increasing and upping that tension. And the sense of... The only thing I wish they'd done, I said this earlier, is increase the sense of claustrophobia. Because a train is a very tight space. Yes. And I think visually they could have captured that. We talked earlier, Tim, about how we both really liked some of the way they shot some of the things like the way they did the scene, the way they shot the scene where they're gathering the evidence, like the pipe cleaner and the handkerchief Mm -hmm. and how they shot it from above because what they were doing is they actually created a replica of the original train. My understanding is that could be corrected on this. Some listener probably will that they, they built it to scale everything like they they made the same style of woodworking and they did the same dishes they even tried to create the same menu and all those kinds of things and so that means it's small like those compartments those rooms those hallways and, and things those passageways are are tight it's tight yeah and a film you know even if you're building a set these are big cameras that's how you get such beautiful shots well i mean that's that's a oversimplification but there're big cameras and there's lots of people on a set and so they did a really good job allowing us to see into that room in a way that allowed us to kind of take stock of what was in it. So if we were being, if we were paying really close attention, we could have seen the handkerchief or the pipe cleaner or the, the note in the ashtray, right? Yeah. It's not, we weren't just dependent on the camera showing us exactly what Hercule Poirot sees. We got to discover it
1: ourselves a little bit.
2: Yeah. And they did. So I thought that was a really nice way of kind of doing what the book does. Where.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, we talked earlier about how it, it was a big challenge. This movie had a challenge. So I went in, you know, thinking to myself, this is a challenge. It's going to be a, a challenge. This particular story is a challenge to adapt. Because one of the things that a detective story is doing is it's, it's throwing a whole, it's like, a, it's like an algebra word problem where they give you all this information that you don't need to solve it, right? They want to overwhelm you with information so you don't know where the real clues are. Right, That's hard right. for a film because you're doing all these cut shots and obviously you're you know the, the camera zooms in on something and then you notice it it's much more difficult so those long shots especially from above like you're saying where we actually could see the whole room at one time that that was very well done and and a real and a real challenge and so even though that I thought the movie was kind of boring I also recognized what a challenge they had not for it not to be boring like it's just a hard movie to adapt not There's i mean a lot of action in it
2: yeah literally almost nothing happens in the book Right. Like, of, yeah. I mean, literally, a guy dies at the beginning. That's something that happens. And there's a bunch of boring interviews. And then they talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not even as much a procedural as like Law and Order. There's more action in an average law because at least they can go out and drive somewhere.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Oh, you're you're right.
0: you're right. You're right.
2: Or they they go to the lab, right? Or they interview someone on the streets, and they and they when they because when they go to that place on the streets, it feels dangerous, right? And And this is
0: why I did did not have a problem with the two like action scenes that they added in in the film, right? The chase scene and the gun being drawn because you have to do so. You have to externalize this some kind of way or it's just gonna be unwashable.
2: Yeah, yeah. Now, okay, let's talk about well, it's anything else that we want to mention that it does pretty well, and I don't want—I mean, it does a lot. Well,
0: of we about. talked about Johnny Depp that we thought he was really well yeah, done. Johnny Ratchet was yeah. well yeah. done.
2: Yeah. Okay. Talk about that. So, what what's one of the big things that you liked about Johnny Depp?
0: Go ahead, Tim. You had a lot to say about that. Well,
1: this, is, this is superficial, but I love that the first time that we see his face, we don't recognize. We don't see any cuts and scars, and then we kind of move to a medium shot, and we're like, "Oh, he's got a scar above his." eyebrows the first one that I noticed and then Mm -hmm. we're pushing a little bit closer and his face is all cut up Mm -hmm. and I thought that that was just first-rate filmmaking you know like it's kind of revealed the camera reveals sure he's a gruff guy at the beginning but he's not he there's no evidence that he might be a monster but the closer we get the more we think oh he has been through a lot and his his grim countenance makes us think and he probably brought it on himself
2: <laughs> well and of course uh poirot says both in the book and in the movie i don't he refuses the case specifically because he says i don't like your face yeah. so right. as an audience you have to that has to come across it really has to come across right.
0: and so that scene in the dining car between Ratchett and poirot was was a very important scene because every uh, everything about this movie the question of justice the whole nine yards hinges on whether or not you feel any sympathy for ratchet Mm -hmm. so he can't be sympathetic but he also has to be real he can't be like this over the top kind of snidely whiplash you know I'm the bad guy I'm in black you know I'm the bad guy because I'm wearing black he has to be real but there has to be something about him that's very off-putting so the tension in that scene and the, the cake and oh but you'll eat my cake and then just it was a lot of really good tension there between the two of them. And you see the disgust that Poirot has and you know, I'm, I refuse and they, they dragged it out more than in the book, but I thought it was appropriate
2: mm-hmm.
0: because you don't have, I mean, in the book you have every single person saying, Oh, he had the look of evil, but you, I mean, you can't do that in a movie. Everybody just keeps saying over and over, he looked really evil. You know, <laughs> you got to show it. And so, no, I, I thought that scene was really well done and established well who Ratchet is and that he's unsympathetic
2: in 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 some ways it might be my favorite scene in the movie because it's a classic example of of a director okay in this case the director is the actor but of the director letting two actors really act um they those were two guys that they they really owned their their lines and they there was like energy between them there was a there was a chemistry between them as actors too um and uh, Johnny Depp is so interesting because as an audience, most of us have a history with him, but that's usually, well, often it's a bad thing, right? So where we say, oh, I can't help but see Johnny Depp or I can't help but see whoever yeah. Yeah. playing that role. But in this case, there's something, like he, even though well, we he's know- He's a
0: bad boy past, right?
2: Yeah, he well, kind of has that bad boy present. past. Well, yeah. And, but as, and I, yeah, I couldn't help but think about that as I was watching actually when he first came on on screen. but but there's something about him that has that ability to play, to play, I don't want to call it darkness, but mystery, just in the way he carries himself, the way he carries his face even. Like, he can grin in a way that is dark, in a sense. Does that Mm -hmm. make sense? And yeah, they make scars and stuff, but there is a...
0: But there know, he held himself in a way.
2: Yeah, he, exactly. He held himself. He carried himself. Even, But even like there's a look about him anyway like that makes, that fits this gangster vibe, like the high cheekbones and just like his, the way his face looks. And I mean, they did a good job upping that, right? But he also...
0: Oh yeah, he had a little swarthiness about his character as well. He was kind of swarthy.
2: <laughs> You're saying that the guy who played Catherine Jack's Barrow has
0: <laughs> I realized that's a, That's a shock there.
2: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, and, and so
0: I agree with you. I, I really liked that scene as well and thought there was good energy between the actors. And I kind of felt like I never saw that again in the movie. Like, so when he's interacting with the, the other, you know, people on the train, I never felt a sense of suspicion on any of them. Really? Like I, I just never felt that tension. The stakes never felt very high.
2: Do you think, well, why do you think that was? Either I don't
0: either. know. Well, you know, one of the things we talked about before, and this, so this could be an answer to that, is that this movie required you to have a whole lot of characters. And usually in an adaptation, you'll just cut half of them out because it doesn't matter anyway, and you focus on a few and you do that well. You can't do that in this one. You have to have the 12. And so yeah, maybe there's yeah. just not enough yeah. time to do anything other than this cursory sort of, you know, there was a point, there was a few points in the movie where I actually thought to myself, if I hadn't read the book, I wonder if I'd be confused right now
1: specifically well do you think you'd have been really confused about the
2: lack of uh backstory
0: yeah just who the characters were and what their relationship was to him and yeah
2: yeah well and that's that you know you could see them throughout trying to give us little little bits of reason to be sympathetic because if we don't have sympathy for the characters then in the end we don't care right choice and in the book it's kind of easy it's easier in some ways uh, to just say why they should have why we should have sympathy right Mm -hmm. they get so little screen time in a movie that has to be under two hours you know i can imagine the producer was like it has to be under two hours michelle pfeiffer is going to be in this movie write the part for her daisy ridley's the new hot actress right so she was just in star wars she's going to be in our movie she's playing Mary, write the part for her. Um, and then you can, you, you can imagine them adding all these different notes, like about, um, are, do we want to, do we want to address the issues of race in Agatha Christie? Um, so drop something in there about that. And uh, we want to have Willem Dafoe in it. And we want to have uh, Judy Dench in it and Olivia Coleman in it. Cause she's going to be the new queen in the crown um, and, and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So you can imagine that as a film, as a writer, and dealing with the producers and the studios and all this and i don't know how this happened exactly but there are all these pressures that come into it that can affect how you write a film and there's just not enough time for all these actors and actresses yeah. it should have been a three hour amazon series rather yeah,
0: than a hour and 50
2: that. minute film but it's a franchise this is ip you know they're going to do death on the nile next which they alluded to at the end and one of my favorite va- favorite parts of the movie actually um that was like that was there was actually subtlety to that which i enjoyed this movie is not particularly subtle
0: it is not
2: um it does have some moments where it's subtle but overall subtlety is not its strongest point let's talk uh oh tim was it you that mentioned or angelina that mentioned johnny depp's coat being a nice i did angelina loved it i did too and tim you mentioned something about when he first enters in that, like there's a fight going on and then as soon as the fight happens, he leaves. Was that you? Angelina?
0: No, I said that. Tim said the thing about he won't take the best table, he wants the one in the corner. Mm, Yeah. His character was well-developed. I I, I didn't have any problem with that.
2: Yeah, and of course, we had to feel... We had to not... We had to feel suspicious about him Mm -hmm. to care. And I think one of the things that's problematic about this movie, just... It, sort of in the same way that it's problematic about almost every superhero movie right now is that there's just an a villain issue. Ooh, what do you mean, David? Most superhero movies that are made right now don't have good villains. So it becomes about these guys just proving how great they are yeah. rather than having someone to really who is who is almost an equal to go up against. So yeah. you look at the Dark Knight, the Batman movie with Heath Ledger, his last role where he plays the Joker back in 2007 or eight or whatever. And this is an incredibly powerful villain, right? And yeah. so it, it creates a conflict that is with high stakes and that yeah. real challenge for Batman. Too often, the villain problem isn't there. And even in a movie like, like Murder in the Order Express, there's no villain problem. Because essentially the villain is done away with. And so your conflict is almost entirely interior, right? Yes. It's almost entirely, how great is Hercule Poirot Mm -hmm. And then what is that going to mean in the end? Yeah. Which brings us to Poirot.
1: Before we get to Poirot, I think we've talked about this before. I read a book called Story by Robert McKee. It's a fantastic book. It's basically a screenwriting book. It's learning how to screenwrite. Um, If you guys ever saw the movie Adaptation, did you guys see that?
0: Oh, yes. I really like that.
1: So there's a character in there who's Robert McKee. I mean, he's... You know, the main character in adaptation is trying to write a screenplay, and he goes to Robert McKee's screenwriting workshop. Well, the real Robert McKee wrote this book. It is superb. But one of the things that he says in the book is, basically, you can almost measure the quality of a movie by measuring the quality of the villain. If you have a really great villain, and your protagonist can overcome that villain, you've probably done pretty well. You know, like, you've got to have a lot of other things fall in place, good acting, good cinematography, et cetera. But as far as the story goes, you've kind of got your story down. And I've thought about that so many times. And I've thought about, well, I'm just going to venture out here. I think I've even mentioned this on a previous podcast. I, for me, this is the number one complaint that I have against most, quote, Christian art, like contemporary Christian art, the villain is not very scary. The villain's just mm. not like I have no fear. It's just sort of um a puppet for evil or something like that. So anyway.
0: Do you mean in that sense that they, they don't make evil alluring, like they make it kind of impotent? Like and you see so you're watching it thinking, Who would choose to be bad?
1: Yes. Yeah, sort of like that here, I'll give you an example. There was this movie called amazing grace
2: about um wilberforce
0: yeah i've seen that yeah, I mm-hmm. really
2: you're gonna don't you might ruffle some feathers it's fine i'll ruffle feathers
0: Ooh, <laughs> go for it
2: that
1: on is it gonna come back is it going to come back on you guys david if i do
2: no no i mean no just if you don't like the movie just i mean people it's aren't a terrible movie, <laughs> <a> terrible movie. <laughs> okay go on go on
1: it has a great i mean william wilberforce was a hero by anyone's standards, a great man. But there were two um, kind of protagonists for the slavery movement in that were represented in the film that were in Parliament. These guys from the first 10 seconds they were in the movie, you knew that they were just sniveling, spineless, powerless cowards, you know? And everybody knows now what an abomination slavery was. But to not be able to make those two characters powerfully evil, enticingly
2: evil, um,
1: they did not-
2: Complex? Like there's no, there was complex no complex?
1: In any way, like they literally were just like kind of giggling ne'er-do-wells that were sort of talking into their um, the tips of their fingers toward each other. And they, you know, it was just like, there's no fear there at all. And we had to- There's fear. no there there? There was no there there. And I think that so much of the reason that mo- the movie failed for a couple of different reasons, but one of the big reasons was, we never felt just like the brute, instantiated, intractable power of the status quo.
2: Hmm.
1: It just felt like there's a couple of guys that want to institute slavery. There's like no sense. Like slavery is an institution. There was no sense of that whatsoever anyway.
2: So it didn't feel like he really had to overcome what he actually had to overcome. Exactly. So it didn't, it didn't. exactly. And so if there's not, is it, it's kind of like Flannery O'Connor's redemption thing. If if sin is not a real thing, then redemption right. is meaningless. Right. So if evil is not a real thing, then overcoming evil, or if evil is just some, some easy thing to overcome, then it's, you haven't done anything by overcoming it.
1: Yeah, absolutely right.
2: Hmm.
1: And, and to tie it back into our book, I think part of the reason the book is satisfying is that it's a moral dilemma. Part of the reason the book works is because of the intellectual, putting together the intellectual puzzle. But part of the reason that we talk so much about the question of justice at the end is because that part of it is so, it's a large problem to overcome. What Mm. do you do in this situation? It's a, Mm. it's a sizable problem to overcome.
2: Let's 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 talk about that. We we had planned to keep this pretty short, so let's let's jump over to that, and that'll take us, I think, to our discussion of Poirot, because the because the interpretation, the choices they made about the ending, are very tied to some of the choices they made about Poirot.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Um. So let's so let's talk about that, Angelina. You talked about how if there's an area that the film did not present the essence of the book, it's in the choice that they had part I'm making is is that correct and that was kind of the primary area that you had a problem with it
0: right so at the beginning he he in the opening scene I think he says his line about you know right is right and wrong is wrong right and so I think okay here we go you know they're pulling that justice theme out let's see where they go with this and mm-hmm. um what I thought happened is that they end they had moments where I got excited I won't lie when Penelope Cruz says and when, when Poirot says to her, I don't know where justice is, and she says, sometimes there's a higher law, I was like, "Ooh, we're about to get really interesting here, yeah. right? I got excited. And then he immediately follows that up with this tear-filled scene, right, where he says, basically sometimes you got to choose your heart over your head and i i groaned and i may have also used some colorful language inside my head because i was that upset with that line i was really upset with that line because it's such a cheap line such a cheap line like we're just going to take this very complex issue and i'm going to blow it off with a cliche sometimes you got to follow your heart instead of your head and so i thought that he took this philosophical question that we've all been talking about on the show and just roots the whole thing inside his own character so it just becomes this this interior struggle for him of his heart versus his head.
2: So what should Poirot do as opposed to should they have killed Ratchet?
0: Right. Which, yeah, I thought the book puts both of those things together. And I think that the movie just assumes that the right thing to do is for him to die. Although I will say this, and because we talked about this earlier, and so we'll throw this out to the listeners to see if maybe I just missed the scene. But I was watching the film with someone who had not read the book. And when it was over, she said, how did they know they had the right guy? And I said, well, in the book, he's arrested and tried and gets off on a technicality. And she said, oh, well, the movie just skipped that completely. And she was upset because she said, that changes everything. And that changes yes. what I think about the ending.
2: Yeah, but Tim and I both thought they referenced it in the movie. So we were both like sitting there like, really?
0: Yeah, well, see, I didn't see that. And then some people on the Facebook page also said they didn't see that in, in the film. So now I feel like we have to rewatch it. To I, see thought, I, thought
2: they, I thought they dropped a line in saying that.
0: Okay, if they did, I but, missed
2: it. But it's also possible that I just assumed that they did because I fell asleep halfway through. <laughs> um, which is, I'm, I'm I don't recall David. falling asleep, but.
1: I'm with David. I don't, I neither, I think I just grafted it in from my memory of the reading of the book and seeing the 74 film because the 74 film is, gives it lots of coverage.
2: <laughs> it hey, guys.
1: Headlines from I, the Armstrong kidnapping.
2: I just got a text uh to my like my siblings and i have a group message and my brother just texted me guys go see murder on the orient express
0: <laughs> okay which brother is this because we're gonna have words
2: um I, no comment at the moment oh
0: I, um, I know which brother it is okay i know which brother it is oh, okay
2: um it's the one that has extremely um uh well-thought-out takes on art of all kinds. And if we have a debate about it, he will definitely have a reason for, for it. Like, he can debate Taylor Swift with you for hours and hours. It's okay,
0: now I'm just heartbroken because I know exactly who it is. Okay, fine. All right. Um, He will okay. be getting a text from me when this is over.
2: <laughs> well, hold on. Let me, you gotta let me talk to him first and warn him this is coming. <laughs> um, okay, so... Tim, would you agree with Angelina's assessment? or is I think this was another... I think this was an issue where for us, it was all kind of like, yeah, we basically agree, but it's a matter of degree. <laughs> the,
0: well, I know that Tim did not like that line either. None of us liked that line.
2: Well, one. what I was going to say about that is that line is terrible and it's an example of the film in certain instances being overwritten. Yeah. And like, I just wish that he didn't need to... Say, I think I said this earlier. Did I say this? This is this is my biggest problem with this movie. Is that line right there? Because they did not need to have Kenneth Branagh say the line. Like he did not need he didn't need to explain everything that was on his in his heart in his face and in his heart or whatever. In his head and in his heart because he can do it with his face. Like I Angelina you had a problem with him getting a little emotional. I had less of a problem with that because he he needed to be a character for a movie. Who people can sympathize with and he can feel human so i'm okay with the making him a little more emotional than he was in the book but the, he's a good enough actor to get that complexity and to get those complications and to get that inner struggle out by just being that way on by just acting it he didn't need to say a terribly written line for that to come across and he just didn't trust the audience and he didn't trust himself as an actor mm-hmm. I, that's what i think um, but um, maybe i'm overstating that
1: I think that movie would have been so much more powerful if we could have, yeah, if we could have just seen the emotion and then see him present his solution to the 12. You know, because we would have then known that that emotion that he was feeling um, was him feeling the difficulty of the choice that he was going to have to present. But instead, like Angelina said, I had to choose my heart over my head. And I was like, oh, stop it.
2: (laughs) One of the things that I'm trying to figure out is why he... So why does Bardo, in this case, choose his heart over his head?
0: So one of the things that I thought that the movie was bringing out that, again, was problematic for me is that it was less a philosophical question about what does justice demand. And, And so it doesn't bring up at all the failure of the institution, which for me personally, is a big part of this. The question is, what is justice when the institution fails? For me, I feel like that's the question that the book is asking, which I didn't think the movie asked. So what well, ends up Like being,
2: Amazing Grace, apparently.
0: Well, sure. And so <laughs> uh, what ends up happening, I thought is, so Michelle Pfeiffer makes her speech about, you know, these are good people. These are good people who just want a chance to heal and move on. They don't deserve to go to jail. So I thought then the question then becomes less a philosophical question of justice and more a philosophical question of, do they deserve this mercy? Right. Are they good people? And so then he tests her with the gun faint. Right. And she, she passes the test. She shoots herself, not him. Therefore she's good. And therefore he lets them go because they're basically good people. And I also did not like the idea.
2: Okay. Before you, can you hold that thought? Yeah. I want to, I want to just kind of understand what you're saying there. So the What's the, what are the two options that you just presented? It's not a story about whether he should have died, but it's more of a story about whether they're people who deserve to be punished. Is that what you said? Oh, it, well, happened, it happened fast. I got to admit, I, wasn't, I was trying to track. And now <laughs> Well, it's, I didn't
0: just now say that. I said something similar to that this morning. Well,
2: well what did oh. you just say?
0: I just said the question is no longer a philosophical question about what is justice, particularly what what is what does justice look like when the institution fails, and becomes more a question of are they good people who deserve mercy.
2: So you so you think that it was you're, you think that it was uh, they should he should not have focused so much on whether they deserved mercy, right? Because you don't think that the book focused on that.
0: I don't think the book raises that question at all.
2: Tim, where do you stand on that? I, th- I think
1: Angelina's right. I don't think it's a question of whether or not they deserve mercy. It seems like it's almost a question of whether or not the verdict belongs with the state, or whether it stays on the train. At least that's what we talked about the most. That's what was the mm-hmm. most intriguing. thing. Yeah, about.
2: I mean, we did. That is where we did focus the conversation for sure.
0: And so, okay. So one of the things that I thought the movie did that was interesting, and I was curious where it was going to go, is a few times Paro talked about people having fractured souls, and the camera shots did that because there were a lot of camera shots through beveled glass, so you yeah, saw yep, yep, multiple. Yeah,
2: I was going to. I'm glad you mentioned that. That's so. That
0: was- I, I thought that was actually real well done. Like these are characters who are all torn up inside, and they're all fractured. So I liked that idea. Um, but then I thought the resolution that the movie offered was when Michelle Pfeiffer said, these people deserve to heal. And then we see at the end, the countess is pouring out her drugs and we're supposed to believe now that she she's healed. Cause now Re- Cassetti's dead, which I mean, that's just not true. The truth is that killing Cassetti only fractures their soul more. So I, I felt like that was just a cheap resolution to a very complicated question.
2: So, but doesn't, I, I think this really is a matter of degree because I agree and I disagree with you. Doesn't the part where she's pouring out the drugs happen before he gives his verdict, though? Before?
0: No, it's no, after he... he decides, but before they've told the audience.
2: Well, because he, he says that thing on the train and all the people are there and then he walks off at the end. He hasn't told him yet what he's going to do. And then because the last minute he says what he's going to do and then he walks off the train. Either way, the idea about them being healing and stuff like that um the her pouring out the drugs terrible decision i think they were trying i think they were actually trying to get after something else there oh really what i think i I kind of read that like the thing's over we don't need to worry about having these anymore like we don't have to have our cover anymore i i thought that they were dumping them out because those were a cover and poisoned
0: oh is that how you read it tim i thought i thought she takes the drugs because she can't cope with the pain of what happened and now that there's resolution, she can stop being a drug
1: addict.
2: Yeah, that's, that's what I thought. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, yeah, that's just a matter. I mean, I don't, I don't know what they actually were trying to do there, obviously. But I re- I still, yeah, I just read that as they were, they're like, our cover is over. We don't need to worry about this anymore. Okay. But well, actually, either I way. could be wrong. But yeah, they, either way, the what they did there, they rushed. It's an example of them. In, the, it was rushed. I agree. are very rushed, and they're not, there's not enough, there's no there there with them for it, for it to feel for us to feel anything for them yeah. and therefore it makes it very difficult i don't agree that the book doesn't talk about doesn't doesn't emphasize the idea of whether or not they deserve to be given mercy, mercy. Yeah. to be let go i act, that's basically what i thought about that was the biggest oh. thing for me in the book but that doesn't mean that you're not right that they that they focus too much on the wrong thing, like you can it can still be I can still have noticed that in the in the book. So if, at least I'll put it this way, I understand why when they adapted it for the screen, they pushed that because I felt that tension when I read the book. That doesn't mean it's the primary thing that should have been pushed in the movie. Does that make sense? Yeah.
0: No, I would agree with that.
2: So like I get what they did, but then they it, in doing that it left out other questions that are even more interesting. I don't know if that makes sense.
0: Right. And I think one of the things I said this morning that I have neglected to say now was also part of what they did in, in, in I think, in making the struggle be his own personal internal struggle was they focused on his own tension between the ideal and the real, right? Like he wants to live in the ideal of how things should be. And now he's up against the real, which doesn't fit so neatly. So he chooses to go with the real instead of the ideal. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, I thought that that, I just, I thought that that just placed the whole question so subjectively inside of him.
2: They definitely were trying to do a lot with the, like they kept using words like ideal and fracture and things like that. So they were definitely talking about this, they were get, at least getting at this idea of harmony, right?
0: Right. But Which just, I was initially really excited about when I saw that they were bringing that out.
2: Yeah. and But they just didn't execute their best intentions I feel like in a way that was precise enough I think the word I used earlier was that it was Mm -hmm. very precise there was a lot of imprecise writing and precise characterization and And
0: yes and listening to you talk about it it did make me more sympathetic to it like like maybe they really were trying for all the things I wanted there and they just failed because the tension between the ideal and the real right time constraints (laughs) money constraints actors egos all these kinds of things and we talked about this morning too you brought up the point that Kenneth Branagh has a he's a performer and so he Needed to milk some of these scenes just because of who he is, which I wasn't crazy about.
2: Yeah. So, Tim, I want to ask you about that because I mentioned earlier that it felt like, you know, this is, this is his passion project. Well, apparently, that's, that's what it seems like from what I've read. Um, he's wanted to do this for a long time, he's very committed to the character and to Agatha Christie's interpretation of him. That's why his mustache is so large because she hated the mustaches of other versions, like especially that 1974 version. And he really wanted it to be, she said it had to be the biggest mustache in England and that there should be layers in it and stuff like that. And so he, that's why he, he does that. He they went after the biggest mustache in England. Uh So it's a, there's a big, he has this love of this character, but it feels like, he, this is the guy who is a stage actor he's a you know he's that's where his cut his teeth i mean he's been in movies but at, it seems like in his sort of heart in his essence he is a stage guy and um it that comes across here like there's he soliloquizes what's the word soliloquize so yeah, solilo-
1: right. soliloquize I,
2: I like soliloquize so he soliloquizes a lot
0: soliloquize days that is going to be my autobiography
2: (laughs) d-a-z-e yeah um and he he uh that that comes out a lot in the movie do you think that that he was able to capture the spirit or essence of poirot in doing that because obviously he's trying he's got to present basically a whole book of internal struggle or internal clue seeking that happens in the book so do the soliloquies and does his performance capture that or did you did you not enjoy it
1: well i liked his performance i don't know that it has a whole lot to do with a row of the book but I, the poor of the book strikes me as mildly taciturn you know he's he's certainly not gabby i don't know that he's a silent man either but it strikes me as he kind of leans toward. Pass eternity, is that a word? Um
2: <laughs> if not, it should be. It, it should be.
1: But I agree with you, David. It seems like Kenneth Pano is very concerned. He, he wanted to play to his strength. His strength is stage acting and stage actors, you know, theater is a verbal medium. And he played this movie with verbal panache and I agree with you it was over it was overwritten. I think it could have been I think we could have seen the acting more on his face and less through his mouth
2: which a stage actor is used to
1: hmm.
2: I mean you're farther away right yeah so Johnny Depp is Johnny Depp does a great job with fewer you he can he well right. he's been in movies that are very overwritten he's overperformed before most most great actors have had some times when they do that, but he also understands how to use the camera right mm. which is which can get right in your face it can you know you can have these tight shots but a stage actor is dealing primarily with the language because you're farther away i mean you still have to use your face and your body but right. it's different like a a movie actor makes their money by 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 their face whether i mean i don't mean like by having a beautiful face i mean by using An
0: expressive face, face. Yeah. yes
2: right. yeah and the, and maybe that's where brenna you know Branagh wants to be Henry V on St. Crispin's Day. He wants to be Hamlet, giving the to be or not to be, right?
0: I agree with that. And so, there, there were, and I don't have the words for this, but something felt off to me when there would be those close-ups on Branagh's face. Right? Like what he was doing with his eyes. Sometimes I'd be like, what is he trying to show me with his eyes?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it felt, it felt like, well, it felt, I don't I don't want to, I don't really know what I'm talking about because I'm not a film actor.
0: I uh, don't have the words for it. All I can say is like, it was curious to me.
2: Yeah. Like I, sometimes like I've studied a lot of film, but I know a lot more about writing and directing and things like that than I do about the art of acting. And I've been on, I've been in stage plays and things like that, but I've never been in a movie where I had to act. And so uh, judging it, I feel a little bit like, you know, like someone judging, like i like if i was judging lebron james right now like i've played a little basketball i'm okay for an average person at shooting a basketball for example but i really don't have any right to judge maybe not lebron like who's someone in the second tier i really don't have any right to judge that guy for his you know shooting form when he really makes about 40 percent of them you know so um or baseball maybe is the better what's that i don't know if
1: that's true just because you can't do what he does doesn't mean that you can't like compare him to his peers and say he is lacking or he's
2: superior well that's true and there are, there are principles that i can you know, like i can say that guy obviously needs to you know he's he's his form is off he needs to get yeah. get his hands in the right spot or whatever yeah um
0: so Tim said something this morning that I, I thought was really interesting. That the way that they staged the revelation scene, uh, that it was very much like Brana performing to an audience. So they they really played up the idea of Pora as the performer. So he's performing this end to them you david contrasted that to another version in which they are tightly compact in the car and he's moving in and out yeah, that, of
2: that was actually tim yeah he, he can- oh
0: that was tim said that okay um and there was a lot of tension there which is lost with the performance scene and then i said that well he ends up framing the whole movie with two performances then because the movie opens with the same thing the wailing wall scene where he is he's performing right he shows off what he can do and then he shows off again what he can do um I'm not really sure what I think about that. I I, I did not feel a lot of tension in that scene where he's saying, you know, you did it. No, you did it. I just, I think that's part of the reason why I keep going back to the word boring. It's like, where was the tension? I didn't feel it. I actually never felt like anyone was a suspect.
2: Yeah, I just think that that's the, I mean, I think you're right to be critical of that. And I also think it might just be the story.
1: Hmm. Yeah, it might be. I think
2: there's just limitations to how exciting it can be without completely changing it. Like if they'd had a battle at the end or a little gunfight or something, and they wouldn't have just, <laughs> he wouldn't have just given a presentation of his choices. Like the idea that the detective is just sitting in front of a bunch of people who just murdered a dude and just giving him their ideas and they're not going to do anything to him. Like the the greatest tension in this story that, that Agatha Christie doesn't give us is, or at least the question that goes unresolved for me is why do none of these people just get rid of Herc- Hercule Poirot? Yeah. Like, he's the only guy that can solve this thing. Why does someone not just push him out of the train?
0: Because they're not murderers, David. I think that's the idea, right? They're not murderers.
2: They're innocent people. I mean, so then maybe they don't deserve to be...
0: (laughs) Now, um, one thing I did not, okay, so but, here's another but, thing. But
2: my point is just that that's the tension that could be there. And so the idea that he's just standing there talking to a bunch of people who did this.
0: No, you're right. you're right. And you're right that that's idea. in the book. There is no tension about his danger in the book. You're absolutely right.
2: So our main character um. has no risk.
0: No, even in Murder, Misadvertise, when we talked about that, Lord Peter is at, in danger. So yeah, that's not in this in this book at all. That's right. But so one thing that was actually one of these moments where I thought the plot didn't make sense, and so maybe you guys can correct me here. He makes the point that Ratchet is drugged, right? Which, and that's like the book. So they go in, and he's unconscious, and they stab him, and they're supposed to stab him in the dark so that nobody really knows who killed him. In the movie, he's conscious, he goes to fight against them. They hold his arms down. They cover his mouth. And I was like, "But wait, you drugged him. You said he was drugged."
2: So I t- I thought about that at the time, and I think what they're just going for is that he was like, not he was drugged enough that he couldn't fight any or whatever, but he was like alert enough that he could see what was going on. Like he. But I
0: thought that made it so much more gruesome. Yeah, that then was holding it- him down while they stab him is very gruesome than the way that it is in the book.
2: Yeah, I think. Yeah, I mean, what do you think? It's about much
0: that? more passionately vengeful when when Mother Hubbard takes the knife to him. It's much more vengeful.
2: Yeah. Well, but I mean, yeah. But in the book, we get no nothing of that. And it nothing is, of that. but it's a it is a dark thing to do. It is a dark thing. to do. It
0: is a dark thing to do. You and so I'm not. Nec- yeah.
2: You can't not you. Can, I think I think it would be doing a disservice to the act, to the audience, and to the story, to just pretend that it's not. at minimum an extremely complex and dark thing to the that they did
1: yeah
0: i don't disagree with that I mean, that was one of the things pd james says about agatha christie is that you get the sense when when a book of hers is over that the victim can just stand up and wipe off the blood and walk off i mean she does very much make it as sanitized as she can in the book and so i guess i'm okay with them deciding to play that up. But if you play up the gruesomeness of the crime, then you're going to have to deal with, then the question about whether it was right even becomes even more complex.
2: No, you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's where, it, yep. Say that again? You, you have to,
1: just to finish Angelina's thought, you have to meet the gruesomeness of the crime with some sort of a verdict. that is parallel, <laughs> That is equally weighted.
2: Yep. Yeah. Or at least you at least have to have a conversation about it. Yeah. I wonder. I do wonder how much of this, like, if there was a director's cut, is there more? Are there more scenes that that could, you know, twenty minutes more that could be could flesh this out? Yeah, I wonder. And I also wonder, like, if when they do Death on the Nile, is there going to be? Will they have learned some things, and will they be able to tell a little bit more of a precise uh, action-filled story? That, and I don't mean action like there has to be a gunfight and all that. I just mean with that that gives us the forward motion that you need to create tension. Um, or at least the stakes, they, and I think you know it. Maybe it won't be quite as lavish. It'll probably still be somewhat lavish because of their skill as filmmakers. But that'll be. I'm interested to see what they do with that. Yeah, me too.
0: Yeah, yeah, I'm interested as, as well. I did not know that it was going to be a franchise. I just thought that was a cute little thing at the end when in, <laughs> they segued into Death of the Nile because um, in that book he does actually reference the Orient Express that he was just on that case. So I just thought that was cute. I didn't realize it was. I didn't realize they were setting me up for a sequel.
2: Now I don't know if they've, if they're gonna film it or if they have started filming it or anything. I I just read that 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 was the plan. I suppose.
0: Well, I'm sure it'll depend on what kind of money they take in, right?
2: Yeah. Well, yeah. That's a good point. <laughs> if it, if it flops, I'm they're probably not gonna probably not gonna do it again. Although you never know. Um, all right. Let's let's kind of go with some final thoughts here. Anything you guys wanna you wanna say as we? depart for David I don't again. I just don't
1: the joy of the book for me is such an intellectual puzzle solving sort of joy and I think that part of the reason that the movie falls short is that the movie has to fall short it has to because it has to transform itself into offering a completely different form of delight which Mm. is gosh I'm not sure what the movie's for. visual like visual. Yeah. I think that's like the, the, for me, that's the strongest aspect of the movie, but I would think that Kenneth Branagh was shooting for something more than just a visual pleasure. Hmm. I just didn't, I just didn't find that. I didn't find anything else in the movie. I, I liked the movie. Okay. But I just feel like that's a really tough book to make into the movie.
2: Yeah.
0: I think Tim just named the thing that I've been struggling with because uh, that is also how I felt about it, that the point of the book is it's an intellectual puzzle. And so I'm disappointed not to see that in the film at the same time that I say to myself, that would be the world's most boring movie. You can't actually do that. <laughs> so, I mean, I, yeah, I don't even know what to think about. I mean, I agree with him. If it's going to be a good movie, then it can't be the book.
2: Yeah, Yeah, in some ways to make it truly a puzzle solving thing you'd have to take the tact of david fincher when he made zodiac i don't know if you guys have seen that yes that that is widely considered the greatest like unsolved looks you know crimes puzzle movie of the last of the century so some people consider it the best movie since 2000 and it's but but it's so dark and the stakes are the stakes for the guy who's trying to solve it are there throughout the whole thing. And even though you never see who did it, obviously, or whoever whoever is after him, they're still hovering all around all the time. And that's just, that's not available to these filmmakers for this story. Yeah. And that's, I think that's one of the key areas where, um, a book can do things that a movie can't, and a movie can do things that a book can't. And, um, you know,
0: and that's why it's so curious to me, like the decision-making process, why this Agatha Christie novel, this is admittedly a very diff- a large cast of characters, tons of clues, all internal action. It's just, it's a hard movie.
2: Yeah, okay. So Brando says he wants to do Death in the Nile, but the—but pu- I quote, the public will have to tell me if they fancy seeing it.
0: Ah, so yes, cha-ching. Okay. I did my part. <laughs> I bought my matinee ticket. That's more than most of them get out of me.
2: <laughs> <laughs> uh, Angelina, do you have any any other final thoughts you want to end here? End with
0: no, no. I, I think I think what I, I think what Tim said is right. And so I think I think even though I said boring, I'm sort of sympathetic to the challenge of of it. Like it just sort of had to be boring.
2: Mm. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah. It had to be. It's doomed to be.
2: So Murder on the Orient Express in the first weekend was third in the money it made 28.2 million dollars uh behind thor ragnarok thor ragnarok which made 56.6 million dollars um but is a superhero movie and of course was going to make more money so um,
0: not an intellectual puzzle
2: to solve no no, but apparently an incredible movie 92 92 on rotten tomatoes
0: i'm not dissing it
2: um all right well let's let's um let's wrap it up i guess what's that what was number two in the box office? Oh, uh, something that's terrible. It looks like something that's got like Daddy's Home too.
0: <laughs> oh, I don't even know what that is and don't want to know.
2: That's the one with um, uh, Mel Gibson and... Uh, Wait, he's
0: still alive?
2: Yeah, Mel Gibson <laughs> and Will Ferrell and um, uh, John Lithgow and Mark Wahlberg and they, it's two guys and their dads. And they, for whatever reason, they're all home for Christmas together or something, I don't know. It's, t- it's supposed to be terrible, but you put those four people in a movie, I guess people will go see it. Right, right. Um, all right, well, this has been fun. Thanks for, like thanks for uh, sticking with it today, guys. <laughs> let's, Absolutely. Let's, let's, let's return to our fetal positions. <laughs> it's the
0: episode in which Angelina learns she's an improv actor, not a movie actor. I would <laughs> die to have to do the same take a million times.
2: Yeah, can, you, can you imagine shooting the same scene for three straight days? no i was watching an interview with some of the actors on stranger things these kids and they were talking about how one scene one three minute scene they filmed for two days oh my goodness yep. Yep,
0: i would probably like almost be violent with whoever blew it <laughs> i like, well, i delivered not... my line i delivered my line
2: well the thing is a lot of the times it's not about someone blowing it it's about oh, let's just... get let's shoot this with a different kind of angle let's think about it differently
0: different lighting different shot
2: yeah say this like that was great say it a different way now or this was great or you stand let's just move you slightly here it's like you know there's so much money involved you got to get the perfect thing and you got the editing bay is where so much happens so much storytelling happens i don't
0: know how they create any energy in that i just it would suck it right out of me i could do a stage that's why they
2: get a movie that's why they get paid the big bucks because it's a different kind of thing you know that's why i'm always impressed with people who can go from tv or movies to broadway and vice versa
0: yes I, that makes sense that's a very different experience
2: no doubt okay well uh next week we will be starting on 12th night act one of 12th night this will be where tim's theater chops really uh, get tested he's gonna have to bring
0: expectations bring it are high timothy they are. <laughs> uh, there yes, is, a, is your voice
2: <laughs> as we said there is a trevor nunn uh movie there's lots of movie versions but we're going to use the trevor the trevor nunn version to kind of like be our baseline movie adaptation one for comparison's sake um there are lots of play versions out there uh i i got a new penguin version there's a bunch of new ones that have been released recently um so you you can find them on amazon pretty cheap um and then they're also they're they're basically free on the internet if you want to just find one there as well so hopefully you'll read along with us uh we it's been a long time since we've done a book this old (laughs) so um it'll be interesting to talk about the idea tim you mentioned earlier wanting to talk about the idea of objectivity and subjectivity in art yeah. and i think yeah. that's going to be something that we're going to be able to talk about because of how long shakespeare has been part of the canon so um that i think that'll be that'll be fun to, to address a little bit so yeah all right uh with that for angelina stanford for tim mcintosh and for all of us here at the Circe institute i'm david kern Thanks so much for listening to Close Reads on the Cersei Institute. Uh, Circe Institute. Pod. Thanks so much for listening to this amazingly hosted show on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network.
0: It's past your bedtime. You are forgiven.
2: <laughs> it's, I've done this several times today. Uh, anyway, the point is thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.
0: <laughs> We're getting worse with each take. Oh, I
2: think we are. Yeah, yeah.